This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Our next story, well, it's one about service, love, and sacrifice. Let's follow Eileen Hall's incredible journey across Europe as she searches for her husband in the middle of World War II. Eileen was a member in the Women's Army Corps, or WAC. We got together with Eileen and her daughter Sherry, who both live in Canton, Ohio. Here's Eileen. I'm from Canton, Ohio. I was born in 10, 11, 23, and my mother and dad had a restaurant in downtown Canton, and we had a hotel up above the restaurant, and that's where I was raised. We lived right across the street from McKinley High School, so all I had to do was walk to, for high school was walk across the street and go to school. After my mother made it to my high school graduation, and shortly after that, she passed on, and my dad remarried, and I felt very uncomfortable at home with a different mother, really. And you were working at? Kempkin Roller Bearing Company, so it's a long time. That's 75 years ago, you know, so I'm trying to remember. A lot of it I'll never forget, but, uh, and there I met a girl and we became friends and we worked in the stationary supply office. And uh, she had a boyfriend from Galleon, Ohio, and every time he came up to see her, he brought his brother. So she said, do you think you'd mind dating his brother if he brings him up? And I said, oh no. Well, that was it, because we just melded together and it's just worked out so. But he was being drafted like all the, that he was going to be sent to Oklahoma. So um, after my dad remarried, I just didn't feel comfortable at home. So I said, I think I'll, I always wanted to go to California. So I said, I think I'll go to California because I've always wanted to go there. So I boarded a train and it stopped in Oklahoma. And I thought, well, I'll just see, you know, him while I'm here. So that's as far as I got. <laughs> we got married. <laughs> After I was there a few days, we had to go through blood tests, and it was really, you know. So and we were married in a parson's office. And then it wasn't long after that that he was sent overseas. So I thought, well... Since I'm married to him, I'll go back home and see what I can do, you know. So I went back home and I decided to enlist in the service. So I went in downtown Canton where they had their recruiting office and told them I would like to join the Army. Well, the Navy I really wanted, but you couldn't get in that one until later. So um, I decided I'd get in the Army if I could. So even though I was married, I had to get my dad's consent. Because of my age, I couldn't do it unless I had my parents' consent. So I went to where he worked and told him, and he said, well, if I don't do this, you'll do something else crazy. So he signed. He was a World War I veteran. So he signed, and I took it back. And after that, I uh, got into uh, basic training in Daytona Beach, Florida, 
from there I was uh, I volunteered they said as we were being interviewed the girls that had already volunteered said you'll be sorry <laughs> and so uh, but I volunteered for everything so I always got to pick of things that I wanted to do so I thought that was a good idea from there I was sent to Fort Oglethorpe Georgia for driver training and uh, I led a convoy through Georgia as one of our tryouts, you know, to see how we did. And so, uh, and then we had to uh, go in gas chambers and take off of the gas mask and stay for a few minutes and then go out and catch your breath again. <laughs> so, and then uh, we had to lay down and they fired shots over us, you know, to see how we'd react. And then we had uh, to go through other training, abandoning ship. We had to go, you know, to a top of the ship that would be and go down the sides. And a couple of the girls were just terrified of doing it. So I helped along with them. And then after that was all done, I was sent to Fort Lewis, Washington. And I was only there for a little while. The, the fellows, in the barracks, we're used to having women there, and boy, every time we'd walk out everywhere, shoo, there were guys walking with us, so. But anyway, I volunteered. They asked for volunteers to go overseas. So um, I volunteered, but there were too many, so I wasn't gonna get to go, but at the last minute, one gal dropped out, and so I took her place. And then it wasn't long after that that we were sent to Fort Dix, or New Jersey, and boarded the Queen Elizabeth and headed for France. So, it, on a ship that in peacetime would accommodate two people, there were 24 wax in one room, and, and then we went on and we landed at Glasgow, Scotland, in the Isle of Clyde. And there we were met with the Red Cross and the Salvation Army and they gave us food and until and they decided where we were going to go from there. And some of us boarded a train and headed for Sutton Coalfield, England. That's where I was going to be stationed for a while. And we've been listening to Eileen Hall's journey to find her husband in the middle of World War II. A great backstory. I can't wait to hear more. Sure, you can't either. Again, send your stories like this to OurAmericanNetwork.org. There are so many great stories to be told by you, the listeners. And we look forward to hearing more from you. When we come back, more of Eileen Hall's story here on Our American Stories. Get more at OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter.
And we continue here on Our American Stories with Eileen Hall's story. And my goodness, she goes from a small town in the Midwest, a small town in Ohio. She boards a train to head to California, stops in Oklahoma to see her boyfriend. Well, she doesn't continue the trip. She gets married. He gets shipped off. And what an adventurer this lady was, my goodness, and so many other women who served in the war. She wanted to be in the theater and volunteered for it. Let's pick up where we last left off. Some of us boarded a train and headed for Sutton Coalfield, England. That's where I was going to be stationed for a while. So um, that's where I had to drive a Jeep. I, I went through the motor corps, so I was allowed to drive a Jeep and up to a two-and-a-half-ton truck. So... I drove the, uh, everybody in Sutton Coalfield in England had to list if they had a room available for GIs because they didn't want the women staying in rooms, they wanted the men to be there. So that's what I did for a while and got them all done and and then uh, I was sent, I I drove a major there that uh, Four, four of us were drivers, and I, we all drove an officer. So I drove a major, so we were on call 24 hours a day for whatever reason they wanted us. So, but, uh, well, I had to drive in the fog so bad that I had to put my foot up. They drive on the left side on the curb, so I would know where I was going. And because of that, my left leg is, is not as big as my right one. It took that much, it froze, you know, and I had to go back to the barracks and they put me behind the bakery and so I could thaw out to my leg was so frozen from driving. So uh, we had gone through many air raids at night and and one of the gals said, if I'm going to get killed, I'm going to do it right here. And so the rest of us decided we'd stay together. So that was it, <laughs> because there were nightly air raids, you know. So after I left England, I went to France and was with the post office there as a driver. So every morning I'd drive into Paris, and you could there were, the streets were empty except for people going through garbage cans trying to get something to eat, people and dogs, and that's something I'll never forget. And as I drove to the post office that I was be at, just as I drove in, something cracked on the uh, steering wheel, and I couldn't steer it, but I was already there, so I was, I felt that was a blessing, because if I had done that out in the, you know, out on the streets, it would have been something else. I have faith, and I, I just felt I'd be protected, whatever I did, because I, if I volunteered for something, I felt that that's what I should do. So I just had a different life than some of the other whacks. But <laughs> the Battle of the Bulge was going on then, and they were bringing the wounded into the uh, hospital in Paris. And uh, our commanding officer was called from from the hospital and asked to send some wax down to help. The wounded were coming in so fast. So um, our our commanding officer 
called me and said, you know, going to take some wax to the hospital. So I got my ton and a half truck and loaded it with wax and drove into the hospital in front of the hospital and walked in and here the GIs are all laying on the floor and you could just walk sideways. And so they, we would kneel down and talk to them and take, you know, we all went and talked to each one and asked what, where they were from and just got them calmed down before and then they finally found room for them all. So, but when I had time off, I was allowed to take the Jeep and I became acquainted with two fellows from Iowa. And one was, uh, had his uh, left leg amputated below his knees, so he was gonna be sent home. And he said he hated to see, go home without seeing Paris. And I said, well, I'll see what I can do. So I went to my commanding officer, told her to the store, and she says, you take a Jeep and show him wherever you want to go. So where there were two whacks in the back and me driving and him sit beside me and I took him all over Paris. So he was, you know, excited about that. And uh, we kept in touch for years after I got home, so. I got a letter from my husband saying he was going to be sent to the CBI, that's the China-Burma. And I thought, and I started crying, and the officer was below me, and she came up and wanted to know why I was crying, and I said, well, my husband's going to be sent to the CB area. And I said, I, I'd probably never see him again, and she said, I'll see what I can do. So she got me orders attached to Mark Clark's but he, he never knew I was part of his service. So, but that got me to an early airport and asked, you know, if anybody was going to Paris. And there, there was a plane just out there that was going to be going to Italy. And I told my story to the guy at the desk. And so he said, that plane right there, you can get on. So they put down the Bombay doors and I walked out and and they, one on one side and one on the other, lifted me up and put it in where the gun turret is. And that's how I rode from there to, to Italy. And I got off of the plane and I was standing on the road and I didn't realize right in front of me was the Tower of Pisa because I didn't realize it was that big, you know. And so I walked out and I started hitchhiking. And along came a British guy in a truck with three uh, soldiers in the back and one was they were attending to one and I said what happened she said he got hurt but not by fire I don't know exactly how he got hurt and they're going into Rome so uh, they stopped for water and the driver of the truck had to come back and stand in front of me so I could lean to the back because the people just came from everywhere and they wanted to touch me and you know and I I didn't know what to do so they looked out for me and then we left and went on to Rome to the Red Cross there and they put me up for the night the next morning was a Sunday so it was church so I went down and went to church and after a little while before church started, a fellow sat down beside me and he looked at my patch. He says, you're not from around here, are you? And I said, no, I, and I told him my story. He said, I'll see what I can do. So the next day he had gotten permission from his officer and he was able to take me from Rome to Milano. 
and uh, on the way it started to rain and the fellow didn't know how to do the, the tops of the Jeep so I showed him how to do that and he uh, took me up and my husband was waiting for me waiting there so we had our honeymoon on Lake Como and I had our own villa attached to a regular one which is owned now by George Clooney and I'm sure George Clooney doesn't know it but I'm going to write a letter to him sometime if he ever gets it the Villa Diaz Esti yeah so yeah that was the Fifth Army Rest Camp so we left from La Harve on the E.B. Alexander headed for the United States as we pulled into New York Harbor all the lights came on and they took us off the boat and fed us the best Thanksgiving dinner we ever had. <laughs> so, and from there, we had to go to Fort Dix to get released from the Army. And then I boarded a train for Canton, Ohio. And when I got to Canton, there they were, my husband and my, my dad, and just welcomed me home. He got home seven days before I did. But... Other than that, why, I think my experience was something that not too many people have the opportunity to experience. So that's my love story. <laughs> and I love to tell it. <laughs> so, and thanks for the opportunity to tell it. So that's it. And that's it. And thanks for the opportunity to let us tell it. Eileen, and what a beautiful story about so many things, particularly just a sheer sense of adventure and independence. I think about the coddling of 17, 18, and 19-year-olds today, and this lady and her husband off to Europe to fight Nazis, searching for each other, learning how to drive trucks and tanks, supply lines to defeat one of the world's worst enemies in history without reservation and with a sense of joy afterwards my goodness she looks back at this as perhaps the most important and best time of her life imagine meeting up with a husband in lake como and having your wedding celebration there your honeymoon there and then coming back to new york harbor and having as she put it the best thanksgiving meal ever eileen hall's journey to find her husband in the middle of world war ii her story here on our american stories And we continue here on Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And sometimes, well, sometimes the subject matter is a little tough, but we don't shy away from it. Homelessness is a serious social problem in America that's mostly ignored. And by the way, it touches so many lives in this country. So many families, probably someone in their family has had a bout with homelessness. Well, this problem has been ignored up until now. Mark Horvath has experienced the highs and lows of the American dream, from a successful career in TV to barely surviving homeless and addicted on Hollywood Boulevard. But he found his voice again when he founded a project called Invisible People and hit the streets armed with a digital camera and a smartphone to talk to homeless people 
about their own experiences. Today, he's the online voice of his cause, bringing their stories, that is homeless people's stories, to millions on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Today, Mark's hearing from Olivia and her son Alex, who live in a budget hotel room in the San Fernando Valley region of L.A. The area is filled with miles of weekly-rate hotels that provide refuge for low-income families. Unfortunately, this environment also attracts prostitution, drug use, and violence. Often called the hidden homeless, families with children that cannot afford adequate housing call these hotels home. Here's Mark. Olivia and Alex. Mm -hmm. We're here in Los Angeles, the valley. Mm -hmm. You guys are living in a hotel homeless. Tell me about it. Um, I hate it. This is actually not our first time being homeless. The first original time was back in 2013 when my mom decided to go back to Uganda to have like a mini vacation. I had lost my job. I got laid off. And then um, I thought I had nowhere to go. Thankfully, I went to the county and they put us in a hotel. Actually, we're at the Budget Inn, which is literally walking distance from here. We stayed there for about a month and a half. And then um, there was a Lutheran Social Services. So they helped us um, stay in the extended stay for about three months. And then I stayed in an apartment in Van Nuys. And then unfortunately, my, they cut my hours. We got evicted. And that was the second time. And so I thought everything was fine. And everything went well. And then unfortunately, my son went into anaphylactic shock at the daycare, which is around the corner from here. They gave him a pint of milk and he almost died. Oh my so gosh. we got airlifted to the children's hospital. He was lifeless for a good two, three minutes. And then um, after that, I couldn't work. I, every day I would keep thinking about it. The job I had was seasonal at the Cheesecake Factory ended. And so my mom would help take care of my son. And then I got another job at Bank of America as a temp doing real estate. That job ended as well. I worked at City National Bank and I did a bunch of other odd jobs to try to make ends meet. It wasn't enough. And so that, right before Christmas, we were evicted. And then this final time, actually, we were evicted Christmas Day. And I was like, I, I can't. I thought I was losing I was my mind. To get he was supposed to get all the stuff for Christmas. I couldn't afford it. I was like, you'll get it, you know, next year, this time, this year. It never happened. Um, I was crying. I had to move everything by myself because, unfortunately, the people at Home Depot, they don't speak English. They didn't my want to help me. My grandma was just playing music, not doing anything, not helping. Yeah. I had to move my whole entire apartment by myself in the U-Haul truck, move everything to the um, public storage in Northridge. My back was out for a good two, three days. We checked into the Motel 6 that um, Christmas day, and then um, we stayed there for about a day and a half, and then my mom um, put us at a different hotel. I don't remember which one. And then I went to the county the following day to get the assistance because now they help you every year to get... Um, hotel vouchers so it's a good 28 days through the program and then because I'm in gain and I work they give me an extra 14 days so I got about a month and a half at the Silmar Motel 6 and I would commute from Silmar to North Hills to make sure my son was going to school and LA Family Housing then stepped in because they said I had to exhaust the county before I get their help so after we stayed in Motel 6 actually they um, tried to put us at the palm tree above the street they had bed bugs so we left. I left. I was like, I'm not going to stay in a hotel that has bed bugs. Despite us being homeless, we don't have to be in a bad situation because we're already in a situation as it is. So we left and then um, we stayed at the Travel Inn, which is also in Sepulveda. And I paid out of pocket. So I paid about a good three, four hundred dollars for um, two, three days. And then L.A. Family Housing did step in and we actually stayed in Crenshaw for about a month and a half. Oh and... Um, it was nice, actually. It was like the Taj Mahal. We had all the movie channels. It was a 60-inch TV. 
but the neighborhood was bad. Um, every other week a kid was getting shot at Audubon Middle School and the street would be blocked off. I, I would have to leave at four in the morning just to bring my son to school. Yeah, people are gangbanging, people are shooting, people are drinking outside. It was just not the, the area to raise my kid. And I'm like, I don't wanna be here. If I'm trying to find an apartment in the Valley, I can't do this commute from Crenshaw back and forth every single day. Yes, I go to West Angeles and it's around the corner and that was great, it was five minutes away, but it wasn't an environment I wanted yeah. to raise my kid in because unfortunately as a single parent, little kids are always drawn into that gang yeah. lifestyle. And I'm like, I don't want that for my son. So Bishop so, Blake? Yes, he's still there. He's amazing. That's where I got saved at a Smokey Robinson testimony when I lived in a homeless shelter. That's amazing. So, first off, your strengths, and yours too, <laughs> is really inspiring. Thank you. Um, America doesn't see this homelessness. Bless you. Or they think get a job exactly, and you have a job. Right, I work at the Goodwill corporate office in Panorama City, and um, it's actually better because I used to work at the corporate office in the LA campus in Lincoln Heights, and that commute was just bad. Come time to at four o'clock, I'd be in the freeway for an hour and a half getting home. If there was a car accident, even longer. So I love the fact that I'm five minutes away. God forbid something happens to my son at school, I could get there in two minutes. Yeah. So it's it's better. That is great, but I mean, you can't afford an apartment. No, because they only pay me $12 an hour. I would need a job that at least pays me at least 18 to 20 to survive. I still have a car note that's about 266.83 a month. My car insurance is $160. My phone bill is about 60. All these bills add up by the time, you know, that <laughs> I only have like $100 left in my check. Every other bill adds up. Then I still have to start paying my student loan. So that way I could try to better myself and go to law school. I don't want to be in this situation ever again. Because I, I don't want to ever have to go to a struggle. I want my son to grow up and know, even though we've gone through hard times, mom made it. She made a way out of no way. He's actually in Boy Scouts at West Angeles. He loves it. When they had the whole thing for the vets on Saturday, I woke up at 4 or 5 in the morning, got ready, took him. Just to see his face light up and yeah. be around other kids was amazing. How many places have you been in in the last year? I've been from... Silmar to Crenshaw to the shelter in Woodland Hills and now here. I'm really tired. So that's of five places? Yes, and it's exhausting because as you can see I have all this stuff. I still have more in my trunk. I have like four or five pairs of shoes. I have some other clothes. I'm like a mini hoarder. My I have my right own there. storage space. Yeah, yeah I, <laughs> I try to keep everything neat and organized, but I really accumulated a lot of well, stuff. I hate it because I can't cook. Um, I have an EBT card. My EBT card is actually maxed out. I have no more money. I'm depleted. Um, I'm thankful for my mom that cooks for him and takes him to Denny's so he could eat. Um, whenever he can, I'll just try to get a cup of noodles or, you know, count my pennies that I have and eat. And thankfully, to, um, by the first, I'll have cash aid. And then the third, I'll have my food stamps. And you do this dance every month. No, I, yeah. And I hate it. <laughs> now, because LA Family Housing is helping you, the government considers you're homeless. Yeah. Right? When you're paying for this yourself, you're can't not afford homeless. It. Oh, you're, I couldn't you're not afford homeless. It. No. Yeah. yeah, you're technically you're living somewhere. Yeah. You That's can afford to pay the you know the the monthly and then after twenty eight days you actually have to move. So come the twenty eighth day I'm here, I have to pack all my stuff, find another hotel to stay and then the next day I can come back and check in. It's a new rule as of last year. Everyone in here has to move. Come their twenty eighth day. 
They have um, to exit, take everything with them, and that's and then because come of the homeless families. It's, it's like it's just a hotel. It's not an actual real. It's not your house. So to maintain that law, you have to take everything with you, get out, stay at a different hotel, and then come back law. in. Yes. Oh my gosh, I didn't know. So um, if you had three wishes, what would they be? For me or for him? Both of you. Um, to get out of this situation, to um, pass the bar my first try, and then to get a house for me and all my family to live in. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. It's been an honor to meet you both. It's been an honor to meet you as well. And you've been listening to Olivia and Alex, and, well, this is just great storytelling, and we thank Mark Horvath and Search Invisible People on YouTube or go to their website at invisiblepeople.tv.com and you'll find more in many stories like this. Olivia and Alex's story here on Our American Story. continue with our American stories and we love storytelling about just about everything and there's no more important book with more important stories written in history than the Bible and whether you're a Christian or a Jew or not it doesn't matter because the book has informed almost all of Western literature and my goodness it's just a terrific read and energy entrepreneur Tim Dunn is one heck of a storyteller and we love his stories about Bible verses and Bible stories. By the way, we're, we'd love to hear your favorite Bible story, how it's informed your life, and how it's shaped it. And send your favorite stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And today, Tim brings us one of his favorite Bible stories. There's this one verse in the Bible where God says three people that he particularly admires as examples. And one is Job. Another's Noah. And a third is Daniel. Now, that's a really interesting trio because Job was an ancient billionaire, business guy. Noah was a shipbuilder. I mean, he was a construction guy. And the third one is Daniel. And Daniel was a government bureaucrat. So let me just tell you Daniel's story, and people have maybe have heard Daniel's in the lion's den. And Daniel in the lion's den is a political hit job. So Daniel was from a noble family in Judah, and Judah was captured by the Babylonians during the time of the Babylonian Empire. And Babylon's practice at that time was to take some of the most promising young people and bring them into Babylon and train them up, send them to Babylon University, and then bring them into their service of the king. And Daniel was one of those young men. So he was probably also turned into a eunuch. The eunuch is someone who's been castrated. What the Persians and the Babylonians would do is they would take their civil servants and they would use castrated men because they couldn't produce an heir and so the idea was they wouldn't be a threat to the throne. So it was a way of minimizing political intrigue around the throne. That's your ancient world for you. The ancient world was a fairly brutal place. So you can imagine this young guy's taken whatever it was, a thousand miles away. He's taken, probably ripped away from his family. He's turned into a eunuch. 
I mean, that's all pretty traumatic. But Daniel was a guy that just said, you know, I'm going to serve God no matter what. So Daniel ended up being incredibly faithful and incredibly capable. And so he rose up in the ranks of the Babylonians. And then later in his life, the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. So Daniel survived the takeover and actually became a servant of Darius, who was the king of the Persians. So it tells us that Darius set over the kingdom 120 satraps. Now, let me explain just a second what a satrap was. A satrap was a ruler in the kingdom, like a governor of a little area. Well, where would a satrap get all that money from? Well, the satraps collected the taxes. And the convention of the ancient world was that the tax collectors had a certain quota for the king, and then they could keep an amount for themselves. And of course, the trick is always to keep as much for yourself as possible and give as little to the king as possible. So now bear that in mind, and I'm going to actually read you a sentence from the book of Daniel. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom, and over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then verse 3 here, of chapter 6, then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors are not getting the skim, and the satraps are not getting the skim. It's all going to the king. So what would you expect to happen? Well. The governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. Well, so why would they want to do that? Because their ox is being gored. Their pockets are not being lined. Their ability to exercise cronyism and benefit themselves is being thwarted. Now, do we see any of that in our day? (laughs) I can tell you this is as common as dirt. Human nature never changes. So they're going to try to oust Daniel because he's getting in their way of lining their pockets with other people's money. But they investigated him, they did their opposition research on him, and they could not find anything wrong. So what do you do when you want to do a political hit job and you can't find anything wrong? You make something up. So here's what they did. They said, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to trap him with his religion because we know he's really, really faithful and he prays every day. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king, it says, and said, King Darius, live forever. That's what you say to the king. All the governors of the kingdom and the administrators and satraps, all the governors. Now they're lying here because Daniel's not in the group with them. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. So the Persians had this law. The Persian Empire was pretty famous for its bureaucracy. And the Persians had this law that once the king decreed something, 
it couldn't be changed. Okay, So that wouldn't have been anything new. That was normal. So the king was flattered. Oh, well, thank you guys. Man, that's so nice. You're doing this. You're flattering me. So he signed the written decree. So now Daniel knew the writing was signed, so he knew then this was happening. And interestingly enough, he didn't jump in front of it and say, stop. That's interesting. So he went home and he prayed, just like he did every other day, in his upper room toward Jerusalem three times a day. So then the men assembled and found him praying, And they went before the king and said, Hey, king, remember this decree you signed that whoever petitions a god or man within 30 days would be cast in the den of lions? And he said, Yes, that's true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said to the king, That Daniel, who's one of the captives from Judah, he does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree you've signed, but he makes his petition three times a day. And then this is straight out of the Bible. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself. He knew he had been had. He knew exactly what these guys were doing. He was thinking about putting Daniel over everybody because he was reducing the skim. And now he knows they're trying to get rid of Daniel. So the king went and got his lawyers. And he said, hey, you've got to find a way out of this law. Find a way out. I mean, I, they, these guys have duped me. And the lawyers looked, and they looked, and they looked, and they couldn't find a loophole. So the king brings Daniel in, and he says, I'm sorry. I really messed up, but I have to throw you in the den of lions because I made this law. So the king says, hey, I hope that God, who you serve continually, he will deliver you. The king actually says this. He says, he will deliver you, which is really fascinating because that means... Darius is actually expressing faith in Daniel's God, which is really ironic since the story was everybody's supposed to worship him, and he succumbed to that. Okay, So then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. It's very fascinating. He couldn't sleep. Out of my way, Daniel, servant of the living God. So he got up early in the morning, and he comes to the edge of the tomb, and he says, Daniel... Has your God been able to save you? O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel, and he shut the mouth of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded they should take Daniel up out of the lion den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den. No injury whatsoever was found on him because he believed in his God. So there was only like one night that Daniel had to face down the lions in that uncertainty. But I bet you it didn't feel like just one night. (laughs) But he had to spend the whole night. And that's the way a lot of these attacks are. Keeping the faith through a dark time, a dark night, is part of the lesson here keep the faith. And you don't know what's going to happen. It may be that you don't live through it. But if you keep the faith, there's a sunshine on the other side no matter what. And, and you know, it's interesting, both Nebuchadnezzar, who Nebuchadnezzar is a pagan king, and he has a chapter in Daniel that he wrote that's his testimony, where he praises God and says, this is the true and living God. And that was because of the testimony of Daniel. And Darius the king says, I believe this is the living God. So you have this guy, he's a bureaucrat. He's an honest bureaucrat that doesn't take graft and corruption. That's what he is. I mean, he just works in the government. He's a nine to five guy. He's not wealthy. He is powerful, but he's not a business guy. He's not a preacher. He's not a missionary. 
but look at the impact he makes. And this is one of the things I think we've messed up in the Christian church, and that is we've kind of gotten this idea that you know, being a minister is holy and being a steel worker is not. Well, that's, that's, there's nothing biblical about that. Every job that anybody does is holy if we do it in a way that God asks us to do it, serving others. And you've been listening to Tim Dunn, and my goodness, this guy can teach anywhere, anything, because what a heck of a storyteller he is. And he's doing this just off his head, and I've met few people who can talk about the most important book ever written better than Tim Dunn. Again, looking for your Bible stories, how they've moved you, how they've informed you through your life, your favorite Bible stories, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. The story of Daniel, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This next story, well, it's our Rule of Law series, where we tell stories about what happens when the rule of law is present or absent in our lives. And Alex today brings us an unusual story from a guy named Bill Koch, an entrepreneur with 1,300 employees. Here's Bill. You know, what I really like, if you look at a great painting, you can tell the love the artist did in creating it and to me that's precious and that's what creates in my opinion great art you know is the love for what the artist was doing and then food too you know with an outstanding chef you could taste that oh my god this tastes differently because he put a lot of love into it which means he put a lot of energy and thought and everything else into it and the same with a bricklayer you know he really loves his work he takes a little extra care in doing it other than slapping it together. And the same thing with wine. The great wines, you could really taste the love that the vintner had in making it. And so that to me is highly offensive when someone is faking it. Bill found out that four bottles that were sold to him as Thomas Jefferson's were fake. And then he found out that more were too. There's a huge code of silence because the faker doesn't want to know that he's faking. The middleman who's selling the wine doesn't really want to know if it's fake. In fact, there was one big auction house that was selling a lot of wine in New York in auctions, and they had to have this retailer deal with them to get through the laws. And uh, the guy who owns the retail shop said, why are you selling a lot of fake wine in this auction? And the head in-house counsel versus the out-house counsel <laughs> said authenticity is an opinion and we're not in the opinion business we're in the business of making our margin so just ignore it and then the guys who buy the fake wine if they find out it's fake they want to get rid of it and get their money back so primarily they either dump it into the auction market or they give it to a charity to auction off, or they find some sucker that will buy it. Some of the fake wines I bought were from charity auctions, because the guy gave it to him, and he got a tax deduction on it, 
and some other <laughs> schmuck got him. Mainly me, <laughs> I got him. <laughs> and so I just said, I'm, I'm out of on a crusade. A legal crusade. To shine a bright light on it. And I also, I guess because well, when I was younger, I was taken advantage of by people when I was naive. And so I said, I just hate being cheated, hate it. One of the fakers actually offered to give Bill all of his money back, and Bill said, no, we're going to court. That's right. <laughs> well, I ended up in one real long lawsuit, which we won hands down. And then after that, everybody wanted to settle with me. And there was one guy who said, well, I sold you these fake bottles. Would you give them back to me so I could give them back to the guy that sold them to me? And so I said, all right, I will. But then I engraved on the bottles counterfeit and gave it back to him. I haven't heard from him since. <laughs> <laughs> One big faker sent me a fax saying, oh, why are you worried about fake wine? Even Jesus turned water into wine. And I was hoping I could get him into a court in the Bible belt, <laughs> but I couldn't. <laughs> One guy had a huge collection of pre-World War II bottles of Petrus, which is one of the best wines in the world, and oversized bottles. And I bought a bottle of 1921 Petrus in a double magnum. And I opened it up. God, that tasted like the cheapest wine I've ever had. And I looked at it, and there was an article about this wine about how it was found and who found it, etc. And it was rated 100 out of 100. That's why I bought this bottle. And what the guy did, the faker, I mean, they have a hardy runstock, poured in 1957 wine into the bottle and he made a fake label. We even found the place where he bought the bottle and we found where he had the labels printed. And he poured in 57 wine put in some juice that made it taste old and smell old. I said what he did was put moose piss in it for me. <laughs> and we took this bottle to uh, Petrus and they said they never made big bottles pre-1945. And this one guy who had this huge collection of huge bottles called me up and said, are all our bottles fake? And we said, yeah, how do you know? Well, we went to Petrus and they said they never made them. <laughs> and they said, oh my God. And then uh, a month later he called up and said, well, why don't you buy these bottles for me? And I said, why? And he said, well, it's good evidence. I said, well, I don't need to pay you. I'll just subpoena you. <laughs> Unfortunately, a crusade turned out to be long and very expensive. <laughs> Bill has spent $35 million going after the fakers over what was originally a $400,000 wine fraud. And some might say that's a crusade not worth it, spending 87 and a half times the cost. But for Bill Koch, it is. The crusade isn't about the wines. I mean, it's a little bit about the wines, but Bill could have bought new wines for far less. What it's really about to him is the rule of law. And Bill's pursuit of the rule of law ended up exposing an industry of tens of millions of fake wine. I try to say, well, it's bad business to cheat when you get caught. 
And great job, as always, by Alex. And thanks to Bill Koch. And you might be thinking, expensive wine? How does this relate to me? But if you have ever been cheated, passed along what we in New Jersey would call a fugazi. And I know I have a dear friend who bought what he thought was a real diamond for his wife and spent real money. And it was a phony. And it turned out the guy had been peddling a lot of fake diamonds and to a, a really a harmful detriment of a whole lot of families. A rule of law series, because let's face it, sometimes the cops can't get these people. And sometimes, let's face it, uh, no one else can. Sometimes we, the citizens, have to go out and find these fakers. But if we can't bring them to a court of law, if we can't have the rule of law, then we have nothing at all. Bill Koch's story, his crusade against fake wine, and again, and against fake everything, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to hear from some of the greatest writers in this country, and some of our favorites are at the Wall Street Journal. Uh, We've talked to Heidi Mitchell, I don't know, probably a dozen times up till now, and she has a terrific weekly column that we urge everyone to go and read. And again, we do no politics here, no debating here, but we love good stories and interesting, interesting writers. And Elizabeth Bernstein is a writer at the Wall Street Journal and a columnist there. Psychology and relationships are her beat, and we love those subjects too. And she had a column that was called Fine-Tune Your BS Detector. You'll need it. And Elizabeth joins us now. Elizabeth, why did you write this? What about right now says we need to be fine-tuning our BS detectors? Well, two things, really. The first is I was attending a psychology conference in Atlanta a month or so ago, and there was a whole presentation. Researchers, psychologists, and actually computer scientists have started to research how to detect and how to confront BS. And the reason they're doing it, so my second reason for wanting to write this, first I was intrigued that they were actually studying, trying to quantify this in a scientific way, BS, but also there's so much more of it now. Uh, it's, It's been around forever, really, but it's spreading faster and farther now because of the Internet, because of bots that go on the Internet. They're not even people that are spreading it with intent to harm so um, these two things together, the fact that scientists are studying it and that it's spreading farther, we have to be more careful about it, made me think, wow, that's something we should look at. And by the way, this was the Society for Personality and Social Psychology, and the title of one particular symposium was BSing Empirical and Experiential Examinations of a Pervasive Social Behavior. So let's ask, what is BS? So BS is a form of persuasion, and uh, the the user is aiming to impress the listener by employing a blatant disregard for the facts. So they're just, it's it's different than lying. Lying is, I might want to impress you, I want you to believe what I'm telling you, but I know the facts, I'm just going to ignore them. The BSer could not care less about the facts. I'm just going to let them fly out the window, I'm just going to tell you whatever I want. And by the way, that's why we call them BS artists. I mean, no one ever calls a liar an artist. But you'll also, you'll hear it often. Oh, he's a BS artist, right? 
Yeah, because people sort of do it. You know, some people do it. We might all, somebody might even come to mind right now for each one of us. Like we maybe, we all know somebody. But um, people do it. They're very good at it. Just And what they're good at is ignoring the facts, like completely not caring at all if there's facts out there or not. Right. Harry Frankfurt, in his very interesting book back in 2005 called On BS, explored how BS is different than lying because liars know the truth and push it aside, while BSers don't necessarily care about the truth at all. Those are your words. So this, in a sense, the BSer is sort of like performance art, and everybody sort of knows what it is if they have any knowledge of the person doing the BSing. And uh, talk, talk about that and why you had said a little bit about how social media was making this more explosive and all the bots. But what was the deeper reason for getting at this? Because something tells me that this is starting to show up on, on couches, in, in disorders. In, I mean, there are, there are real problems attenuated with this now. There are real problems. Like, look, we're in this uh, culture right now where people claim fake news. That's a lie at everything. It's almost like a defense. I can tell you anything I want. You can tell me back the truth, and I'm going to scream it above you. Fake news. It's a lie. You're telling me the wrong. Complete disregard for facts. We are in a culture that is changing fast. You know, I believe over the last few years, with the internet, with things going on in the world, it's it's uh, the discourse out there is um, angry, and I, I'm not even going to listen to you. I'm just going to shout above you. And so, in that kind of world right now, people who are doing that, who are these BS artists, can uh, be heard. It's almost like it's becoming a norm in a certain areas. And so that's why it really does. And with the internet, so Facebook, I can post anything I want. And here's something interesting: people who, when they BS when they're susceptible to BS. It's it's the BS that they want to believe, right? right? So I may see something that says chocolate is healthy. Boy, I really want to believe that one. So I'm going to post that. I'm not going to check the facts. I'm going to tell all of my followers, hey, look at this awesome post. doesn't matter who wrote it. Be it chocolate is healthy. So we are susceptible to BS when we want to believe it, when it confirms our own bias. This is all out there in the Internet. Everybody's publishing everything they want on their own feeds. This is why in this environment it's really, really important that we sort of get a hand handle on what information is coming at us and learn to evaluate it. And also, it's exactly why the scientists are studying it now. They know that this is becoming more and more hard and more and more important. Yeah, and I think that you had a line there. It said, basically, if you agreed with the attitude of the BSer, it was great stuff. But if you didn't, it was propaganda. And that tells us, I think that has a lot to do with how we think politically and organized politically in this country, and even on cultural, big cultural questions. And, and I think we've all had confirmation bias in this, in this area for a long time. But I thought what was really fascinating was just the, the, what happens with false news and, and rumors. And there was a study at MIT that you talked about and wrote about. Uh, tell the audience about that study, because this is what I found most interesting and, and most frightening about your piece. So MIT looked at, um, over a decade, if I remember, they looked at many, many um, rumors that were spread, information that was spread in tweets. And what they found out was that uh, the false information moved faster and farther than the truth. So when the, when the tre- tweets were based on true information, they did not go as far and they did not move as fast as the false one. And that is terrifying right now. So and what it is showing is what we were talking about, that people, when you believe it already, when it's your bias, say, you know, my dog's a beagle. I want to believe beagles are the best dogs. If I see a tweet that says that, I'm not even going to 
read the story, see who wrote it. I'm going to move that fast through my Twitter feed, retweet it, because um, it just it is confirming what I want to believe. And so uh, that in this environment, you're right, is terrifying that, that this false information is uh, being spread more than the truth. You know, Michael Crichton, in one of his last interviews on PBS, was asked about, he had written a book about global warming, and he said, there is global warming. I'm a scientist. I'm, I'm as good as any scientist, but I don't know how bad it is. And I think the apocalyptic predictions may be over the top. And the interviewer said, well, why do you think it is that people respond to this the way they do? And he goes, try asking somebody, hey, did you have a good day yesterday? And, and you said, yeah, I had a good day and everything's good. That's not interesting. But say the seas are overcoming the world and make apocalyptic claims and suddenly you get attention. And I think you're sort of saying the same thing here in terms of false claims. Now, he, he thinks that's exact. Crichton was talking about exaggerated claims. And here we're getting right to the substance of false claims. You also write that false claims can override prior knowledge. So talk about that if you could. So people, we have this prior knowledge. I might, in the back of my head, know that beagles are not actually the best breed of dog. They're a little stubborn. They like to eat everything in sight. But I believe it. I want to believe it. And so when something comes at me that says uh, it's different, especially when it's repeated, this is one key thing. When information, when BS or any information is repeated, even just once, we're more likely to believe it. So uh, I may know in my head the beagles are not the best dogs, but if somebody tells me they are, I already want to believe it, and then they repeat it, I'm going to, you know, go for this. This is what I'm going to go for. Another issue that's really interesting in this uh, culture that we're in right now is we all use Facebook, Twitter, our social media to um, sort of broadcast who we are. So we want to broadcast something to our, our basically our like-minded people, our friends. And uh, we tend to then broadcast, we're susceptible then to both broadcast and believe that information that, again, confirms our bias. Uh, so I might be much more likely to read a false claim, decide I'm going to post it on Facebook because it says something about me. Again, maybe it says, you know, just to stick with the dogs, you know, I'm a beagle lover, I'm a dog lover, this is great. Um, it's called tribal epistemology. We're, we're singling to our tribe, this is who I am, these are my beliefs, I share your beliefs. And that's where a lot of fake news comes up to when we're busy telling each other, see, I'm one of you. Yeah, and who would have known with all this open platform and all this open sourcing that we would become much more tribal as a country? And I think everyone can agree on that fact, that people are now siloing more than ever. And now when you hear a differing opinion, you just call it a lie or you call it false. You can't even stand the idea that someone might disagree with you. You can't stand it. We're at a point where we can't even dialogue. And also, I think we see this, um, again, we don't want to talk about politics, but we certainly see it in politics. But we see it in science. We see it in all areas. I, you know, we get rid of people on our feeds if they don't show us what we want to see. Like, we just get, you know, oops, that person doesn't agree with me. They might be my sister. I'm going to get rid of her on my feed. Don't want to see what she's saying all day. So um, we tend to get, you're right, much more sort of closed in. Now my Facebook feed is just people like me, because that's what I want to see when I open my phone in the morning. I don't want to see anything that I find disturbing. Um, so you're right, we're getting smaller and smaller. And again, in that space, that's where this BS is thriving. Yep. And we're learning less and less as a result. I mean, no one, you know, the idea of a conflict of ideas, making and sharpening our ideas. Well, this, this BS stuff plays a part of it. We're talking to Elizabeth Bernstein, and she writes a column at the Wall Street Journal on psychology and relationships. And let's keep doing this. I love your work, and we'd love to have you on our show more often. 
Uh, Elizabeth, thanks so much for doing what you do and for writing this piece. Thank you so much. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. I have sinned, dear Father. Father, I have sinned. Try and help me, Father. Won't you let me in? And we continue with our American stories. And now we bring you the story of someone whom you likely don't know, but will be glad to have met. John Farnham grew up on a ranch in Helena, Montana. And here he is with his story. I was, uh, I was adopted. My mom and dad tried to have children, couldn't get pregnant, went to Catholic Charities, and Catholic Charities helped them get my sister, Janae. Shortly after they got Janae, Catholic Charities called and said, I know that you have Janae. Would you consider taking another baby? We have a young mom coming and we need to find a home. My birth mother, she was 14 when she got pregnant with me. And so my mom and dad said the ultimate that changed my life. They said, yes, we, we would love that. Right after they got me, my parents ended up getting pregnant. And so I have a biological brother to my adoptive parents and a biological sister to my adoptive parents. So it all happened very rapidly. From the time they got Janae till the time that my youngest sister was born, there is only five and a half years difference between the oldest and the youngest child in four kids. So it was like a daycare center all the time at our house. Throw in a cousin or two, some friends, and that's how our life rolled. We always were surrounded by tons of family. Part of that, I think, is also being raised on the ranch. It was such a communal part of our life. Food was very important, so we would have dinners together every single night. My grandfather and grandmother lived on the ranch. My uncle lived on the ranch. Everybody just kind of, the nucleus of our family was the ranch. When I was six years old, my dad got diagnosed with a frontal lobe brain tumor, which affects 100% of your executive function. They decide they need to operate on his brain and they did brain surgery very successfully. However, it changed who he is as a human being. Anytime you have that kind of trauma in your brain, it dramatically shifts who you are. Prior to his brain tumor, he would take all of us kids out camping. He would water ski with us on his shoulders. He would play the piano just by ear. He never had piano lessons and could play anything he heard. He's an incredibly brilliant man. After his brain tumor, uh, that man no longer existed. And so being six, it was really hard for me growing up to understand who our friends remembered as my dad and the stories they would tell about him because they weren't stories that I remembered. The stories that I remembered were much more challenging. They were much more traumatic. It was much more stressful because all of a sudden we went from a two-parent income in this home to just my mom. Not only just my mom, but my mom having to care for all of his children and care for my dad. The dynamic of what she thought she was, her married life was going to look like changed so dramatically. And my dad was only 35 years old when this happened. So 
his life too changed dramatically. 35-year-olds go to work every day. 35-year-olds, their network of friends are people that they tend to work with. All of a sudden, my dad didn't have that. And so there were some really dark days growing up. And if it weren't for the family and my mom's friends from her work, I don't know how, how we would have done it. I don't know how my mom did it, quite frankly. Um, she is a hero to me. She, I, um, she passed away two years ago, and the, the ultimate last thing I said to her was a thank you for saying yes. The yes changed my life. And the yes was when Catholic Charities called. So if ever I were to get a tattoo, it would be the word yes. Because that so is also the way I try to live my life. Be open to opportunities. Be open to what comes your way and say yes. You never know how it's going to change someone's life or your own. I was a student at the University of Wyoming in Laramie. And my grandmother, uh, my dad, my adopted dad's mother had passed away. And I, it, this was in January. And I thought, man, this hurts. Why does this hurt so badly? Because, I mean, she's not my blood. It shouldn't hurt. She's my grandmother, I know, but it's, you know, not my blood. Just thinking, thinking too, you know, too much. And so at that point, I decided I really wanted to find my birth mother. So I told my mom and my dad, and they're like, anything we can do to help you, we are happy to do. And we've always told you that, and, and we stand by that. So she gave me the lawyer at Catholic Charities who handled my case. I reached out, and they said, you know, write a letter to your birth mother. In that letter, you can say whatever you want, but send it to us, we'll send it on to her. So I did that, and I called about a, five days later. Have you heard anything from my mother? No, uh-uh. And this went on. I would call every day and my ideas of hope and that I had this other family out there somewhere that was as crazy and wild and fun and dynamic as my adopted family, those ideas and dreams and wishes started dissipating. And I started getting a little anxious and a little bit angry because I wasn't hearing back from her. And I thought, well, how, how dare she? I just, all I need to know is, do I have anything to worry about medically? I don't need anything from her. I don't want anything from her. I simply want to know that everything is going to be fine, that I want to know her story. I want her to know I'm, I'm in great hands, that I have a wonderful, loving family. So I asked the paralegal in moments of frustration, I said, what is plan B? Because I'm not satisfied not knowing now. And she said, well, we can go through the Office of Vital Statistics in Montana and track every time that she got married or changed her name or changed an address. We can, we can track her down. And I said, okay, I, that's good to know that there's a plan B. Well, from January to spring break, which was in March, zero word from my birth mother. So I went home for spring break and called Catholic Charities and said, okay, I just arrived at the ranch. I'm in Montana. Let's go and do plan B. I'll be up to your office in 25 minutes. And they said, give me, give me five minutes. I'll call you right back. So they called right back two minutes later. And they said, what do you want to know? We, we have your record. It's fully up to date and you can know anything you want. And I said, I don't want to know anything right now over the phone. Uh, I'm going to come to your office and we're going to sit with my mom and dad and we'll learn about my birth mother together. And we sat there and, and 
got the basics of my birth mother, and she was at the time a student at the University of Utah, finishing up her architecture degree. It was finals week for her, so timing was, was not ideal. And it wasn't ideal for my adopted family, certainly. Over the course of the next seven days, I was on the phone with my birth mother in my bedroom, learning about her, having her learn about my life. And it would be for hours and hours at a time. All the while, my family is outside my bedroom door hearing this, seeing this, witnessing this, knowing that I am busy developing this relationship with the woman who gave me away for adoption and who blessed me to be with this family. I never realized what the optic of that looked like until afterwards. When, when my birth mother, she would check in with Catholic Charities on me every single year. Anytime she got married, and there were four of them, four marriages, anytime she moved, phone numbers in those days didn't port with you. Phones always changed when you got a new address. And so she kept my file completely current with every time she moved, every phone number changed, every address. But she would call every single year and check on me. And one time they slipped at Catholic Charities. When I was 12 years old, when my birth mother called Catholic Charities to check on me, Catholic Charities had not disclosed my name up until this time and they accidentally said, John is doing fine, he is in school. And so now my birth mother knew that I was John. My adopted family had to be told because they disclosed my name. She didn't know my last name, but she knew my name. And it terrified my parents because that was the first time that they knew that my birth mother was checking in on me every single year. And I didn't realize this until I was an adult and my mom, my adopted mom told me what had happened and how it rocked her world. How she really thought that my birth mother was coming back to get me. And when we come back, we continue with this remarkable story, a love story, no doubt, and very different than most of ours, but in many ways the same too. John Farnham's story, here on Our American Stories. We're back with Our American Stories and the story of John Farnham, the gay son with a Catholic adoptive mother and a Mormon birth mother, only in America, folks. And by the way, I love that he said the yes of the adoptive mother changed my life. It's how I live my life. Say yes. A really fascinating guy John Farnham is. Let's continue with his story. You can imagine that knowing the dynamic, it's very easy to think you understand why you were given up for adoption. It's pretty clear to me. She was a young mother, 14-year-old, 15-year-old. She should have been adopted. That thinking was not really her thinking at all of why she gave me up. Her thinking was she didn't feel loved in her own home and she wasn't going to bring a baby into that home. 
So it was a much more complex decision, a 15-year-old making that kind of a decision. That's pretty profound and really deep thinking. So the scenario of the pregnant teen going away to school is exactly the scenario that my birth mother was under. Sent away to school, in air quotes, to the Florence Crittenden home to have a baby. Out of the eyes of her family, out of the eyes of her family's friends, she was sent away to go have a baby. Yet that didn't stop her parents, my birth grandparents, from coming to Helena when I was born, bringing clothing to take me home in, um, and raise me, and for her to say absolutely not, no. So I, I have such respect for my mom for being strong, sticking to her decision, and doing what was best truly for me. She got pregnant again two years later, and was old enough at that point, she was 17, that she kept my half-sister. And so she moved out of the house and she raised her as her daughter. And so when, when I'm back for spring break and I'm getting to know my birth mother in front of my adopted family, they already have this anxiety that I could have been taken from them at any time. It became really clear the night before I left there were a lot of tears at my house and a lot of tears of fear and really hurt feelings that my sister, I remember Anne saying, what if you like your other sisters more than you like me? What if we never see you again? What if you like this family more than you like us? And it was heartbreaking. It was the most heartbreaking thing I think I've ever done. And I realized at that moment the gravity of what they had experienced over the course of seven days and how do I fix this? There's no way to fix it. It's just to continue to love and be loved. Um, I tried my best to fix it. I wrote little love notes on stickies and hid them everywhere. Hid them in food containers, hid them in the remote control batteries, hid them in my mom's purse. I mean, everywhere you could imagine, I hid love notes to my sisters, my brother, my mom and dad to assure them that I was going nowhere. It just wasn't my intent at all, but they didn't know that. They only know what they witnessed, and what they witnessed was an entire week of me on the phone with my mother getting to know her and her getting to know me. So this is March, and I learned from my birth mom that she had not told her family about me. She also never received the letter that was sent. Even to this day, she has never received that letter. So the first thing she had to do was tell my sisters that they have a brother. And my sisters, when I met them for the first time, they were like, now we understand. Every spring, mom would go into this deep depression. She was missing you. She knew your birthday. She knows your birthday. You, every spring, we would lose her for a while. She just would slip into this depression. And now we understand why. Well, it was only a week later that I got back to college. My birth mom drove from Salt Lake City, Utah to Laramie to meet me for the first time. And it was really a moment of anxiety, as you can imagine. The arrangement was I would meet her at the hotel. Well, the day leading up to our meeting, she, she arrived in the evening, it was really stressful. I go to her hotel. The hotel has exterior doors, so there's no interior hallway. I knock on her door, she opens the door, and I'm blown away. 
blown away because I had often wondered if I were ever in a room with my birth mother, would I be able to pick her out? Absolutely. I looked at this woman and she hugged me so tight and all I wanted to do was push her away to look at her because I, lo- I was looking in the mirror. I could not believe I could look so much like another human being in my life. It was so amazing to me. We had two entirely different perspectives on that meeting. She was reuniting with a son she has been missing for 24 years. I am meeting an adult and I cannot believe this adult looks just like me. And so our perspectives were so incongruous and so interesting. It was, it was a fascinating moment. Here's what I remember most about, uh, second most about that moment of meeting her. Um, she had me go down to her car with her to get her handgun out of the vehicle because she travels with a handgun as a single woman. And I thought, oh my Lord. Now, I'm not anti-gun, I, I grew up with guns. But I just thought, how interesting. You know, our guns were to go and get gophers and, you know, recreate. Hers was really for self-protection, and I never thought about using a gun in that way until I met my birth mother. It was like this regressive behavior. We did things like she wanted to take me to the zoo. It was short of just tying a balloon onto my wrist and taking me through the zoo. It was just shy of that. And this went on for the whole weekend. And it was really an important, I think, time for me, and obviously an important behavior for her, to have kind of some of those years condensed into some experiences that she didn't get. Well, as you can imagine, there is a lot of tears, a lot of apologizing, a lot of I'm sorry, and and I, I can't accept her apology. She gave me an incredible life because it could have gone the other way easily. She opened doors for me that never would have been opened before. She introduced me and gave me the opportunity to be introduced to an incredibly loving family. I want to share with you a Thanksgiving that I had probably about five years ago. We are all sitting around the table, Tracy's children, Tara and Steve, um, my mom, Trina, and Paul and I. And my mom says, let's go around the table and say the things we're most thankful for. And almost every one of them were thankful that we were together for the first time ever at a holiday and that Paul and I came to spend time with them. And I thought this was the most beautiful demonstration of love and of understanding that I had ever seen. We are all in her home, around her table, and grateful and loving on one another. It was probably the most special Thanksgiving I've ever had. The turkey got burnt because my mom is not a cook. But when my mom and I were in the kitchen kind of wrapping up the meal, I remember vividly the sounds coming from the living room. And it was all giggles and all love. And it was beautiful. Being adopted, I'm very close to adoption, very close to foster care work, very close to the conditions and the ideas around improving outcomes for kids who are in the foster care system. Um, the idea of adopting an older child is something that is appealing to me, and here is why. If my mom were alive, I would still be calling her for her goulash recipe. I talk to my mom more now that she has passed away than I did even when she was here. Um, kids still need parents. 
Whether they are 18 or 25 or 48, kids still need parents. And for a foster kid to age out of the system with no parent, it's just, it's hard to imagine. Um, it was a good friend of mine, right after my mom died, and I said, I just have this instinct, I wanna call her. And she said, don't worry about calling, just talk to her. She's listening, talk to her, just as you're driving or whenever, whenever you want to. And it was true. That's how I talk to her more now that she's passed than when she was alive. I talked to her when I was going with, to pick out the Christmas tree. My mom and dad would always come to Denver. We would go pick our Christmas tree out together. And my mom would sit there and watch me decorate it and, and tell stories and sing Christmas carols. She could still do that. She could still be there to pick out the Christmas tree. I just had to share it with her. I can't imagine what heaven looks like with my mom there and my grandmother and my aunts. And, because our family is wild and crazy. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. God was, is ready for this, but he's got it. He's got them all. And the, it, I bet it's a, a party up there. No, no question. I, I am, cannot wait to get there because <laughs> it's going to be fun. And that was John Farnham. And what a story. What a beauty. By the way, what a decision his birth mother made. She didn't feel loved in her own home and didn't want to bring up a baby in that home. And John had noted that was profound thinking for a girl because, my goodness, she was all of 14. She was a girl. She wasn't a woman yet. What a sensitive soul John was. And that now he thinks deeply about adopting an older child. And, my goodness, there's no greater gift you can give to anybody than to not let a foster kid age out of the system because then they never have a parent, ever. And what a thing. I know I still talk to my dad. 88 years old, I still talk to him. My mom has passed. I still talk to her all the time. And I can't imagine. It's unimaginable living life without a parent, without that kind of unconditional love. John Farnham's story, by the way, this adopted child is the deputy disruptor at the Mortgage Family Foundation, and he has helped give away $100 million so far. A love story that continues. John Farnham's story here on Our American Stories.